I'd like to begin with a quote, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Enerationis and Psalmos, uh, the expositions on the Psalms from St. Augustine. This is a work that's treated as one work, but what it amounts to is a long list of homiletical commentaries. And in the commentary on Psalm 30, Augustine says this, if the psalm prays, you pray. If the psalm laments, you lament. If it exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. The presence of the book of Psalms in St. Augustine's Confessions is extensive and unmistakable. From the opening lines, citations of or allusions to individual psalms occur on virtually every page. Given the ubiquity of such references, readers have long recognized the fundamental importance of the psalms for understanding Augustine's unique project. Woven throughout the whole, the psalms are constitutive of the literary and theological integrity of confessions, providing what one scholar has called a veritable support structure for the entire work. Exactly what part do the Psalms play in confessions? To answer this question, we will start with another work of Augustine's, namely his Expositions of the Psalms. Begun in AD 392 and not completed until around 418, the Expositions is undoubtedly the longest and probably the least read of Augustine's major works, again, if we consider it to be one continuous work. Even so, time spent with expositions yields valuable insights for the reader of Augustine's Confessions. For not only did Augustine write confessions while he was working on expositions, that is, he wrote the confessions from uh, 397 to 401, but also the two works have a great deal in common in terms of their essential content and message. Where they do differ, it is typically by way of complementarity rather than contradiction. Once the way is prepared for our exposition by our excuse me, by our examination of expositions, we will turn to confessions and spend the bulk of our time considering just how central the Psalms are to Augustine's confessional masterpiece. Composed over a period of nearly 30 years, Expositions is a rich and varied tapestry of Augustine's homiletic commentaries on all 150 psalms. And on several of these psalms, he wrote more than one commentary, uh, typically two um, on most of them or many of them. As a faithful shepherd of his ecclesial flock, Augustine preached, wrote, and dictated his way verse by verse through the entire Psalter. Why spend so much time and effort on the Psalms? Well, first of all, the Psalms had a profound influence on a significance for Augustine throughout his life as a Catholic. From the early days at Kasikiakum in September 386 to the end of his life in August of 430. Reading the Psalms at Kasikiakum, Augustine tells us he was, quote, set on fire, end quote, with love of God. And as his biographer Pisidius tells us, his final days, in his final days, Augustine chose to be alone on his deathbed with a copy of the penitential, penitential Psalms. 
In fact, he had them copied in very large letters and put on the wall so as he was coming close to meeting his end, he could reflect on the words of the Psalms. Uh, putting this beginning and end together with the years he spent meditating and preaching on the Psalms, it is not hyperbole to say that Augustine spent his converted life in the Psalms, reading them, ruminating on them, and ultimately embodying them through prayer. In a certain way, the centrality of the Psalms for Augustine mirrors their centrality in the liturgical life of the entire church. From very early on, the Psalter was widely regarded among Catholics as the prayer book of the church. As is the case today, in Augustine's time, the reading or chanting of Psalms was an essential part of the Mass, being one of the three standard elements of the Liturgy of the Word. In addition to their place in the Mass, the Psalms were also an integral component of the then primitive form of divine office or Liturgy of the Hours, the liturgical prayers faithful Catholics would pray throughout each day. In expositions, Augustine bears witness to the common custom and likely his own practice of praying the Psalms at least four times per day as a way of heeding the exhortation from Psalm 50 verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of praise. With all this in mind, it is not surprising to find that patristic exegetes produced more commentaries on the Psalter than on any other biblical book. Among this massive store of psalm commentaries, Augustine's exposition has preeminence. To begin with, as one scholar says, in terms of its monumental size alone, expositions surpasses all other patristic commentaries on the psalms put together. Beyond its sheer bulk, though, expositions has enjoyed an enduring influence on Western culture. From Augustine's time on, many of his homiletic commentaries were copied and distributed with his permission and blessing for the use by other preachers. And by the way, uh, Augustine comments on this, I believe it's in De Doctrina, uh, saying that the source of wisdom and eloquence in preaching is God himself anyway, so one should not feel bad about using the words of another since their ultimate source is the Lord and not the preacher. Moreover, the importance of his collection of psalm commentaries for subsequent generations can hardly be overestimated. Again, a scholar tells us, endlessly copied by medieval monastic communities for meditation on the Psalter, Augustine's expositions dominated the interpretation of the psalms in the West for more than a thousand years. Sounds something like the city of God in a different context in a different discipline. Given the sheer magnitude of the project, it is not surprising to see natural development in Augustine's thought over the years as he was composing expositions. Nevertheless, Augustine remains convinced that not only the Book of Psalms, but the entire corpus of sacred scripture constitutes a unified, coherent whole. He speaks of it as one book that has a wondrous and divine unity. Throughout his works, Augustine contends that the most basic aim of scripture is to engender love. First love of God, then love of neighbor for God's sake. Within his expositions, Augustine clarifies the connection between the fundamental end and the divine purpose of Jesus Christ. Two quotes from different expositions. Whatever is carved out of the holy page has no other end than love. And Christ is the end of the law. 
As all is ordered to love, then so is all ordered to Christ. This truth has ramifications for our reading of scripture in general. Augustine again. Our whole purpose when we hear the Psalms, the prophets, and the law is to see Christ there, to understand Christ there. For Augustine, love is not a disembodied principle, but is bound to Christ, specifically to the humility of his incarnation and crucifixion. And if we think about that, uh, that will have a direct relevance for the confessions, where humility is his constant preoccupation from the opening lines, dispensing with pride and engendering humility, in particular through the incarnation and crucifixion. Furthermore, as Augustine interprets them, the Christ of the Psalms is the totus Christus, the whole Christ comprised of head and body of our Lord and his church. So when reading the Psalms, we are members, we as members of the body of Christ discover our own voice. Augustine uses this phrase in the commentary on uh, Psalm 40 and 145 as well. He returns to it, this notion of discovering our own voice in the Psalms. In a profound sense, the faithful Christian who sings or prays the Psalms finds himself within them. He is an essential part of the theological drama that unfolds within their verses. As Michael Cameron puts it, Augustine awakened his hearers to themselves as subjects of the Paschal mystery and participants in its dynamic of charity. The centrality of totus Christus and love in the Psalms is crucial not only to understanding Augustine's interpretation of the Psalter, but also to recognizing the indispensable role of the Psalms and confessions. Just as we as readers of the Psalms are meant to discover our own voice in them, so too Augustine models this very discovery within the pages of confessions. Making the voice of the Psalms his own voice and thereby coming to see himself and his life in the light of Christ and his love. In his second homiletic commentary on Psalm 30, verse, excuse, Psalm 30, Augustine instructs us on the proper way to read a psalm. And I, I said this at the beginning of the talk, but we'll hear it again now. If the psalm prays, you pray. If it laments, you lament. If it exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. Viewing the Psalms as a mirror, one comes to see one's hopes, fears, joys, and sufferings as a participation in the totus Christus. There comes to be a correspondence between one's personal life and the text of the Psalm. But the Psalms are more than simply a mirror or speculum. They are also a, a remedy. As one scholar puts it, the Psalms offer to men and women not only a reflection which serves as a diagnosis of their condition before God, they also, more especially, offer a therapy for human effective life bereft of its primordial harmony. A commentary on uh, Psalm 93, where Augustine uses the term medicamentum. The same understanding and use of the Psalms as speculum and medicamentum underlies Augustine's use of and comments on the Psalms in Confessions. Reading the Psalms is meant to transform the heart of the reader. For Augustine, says Cameron, the Psalter is not only informative, but performative. In other words, 
the reading of the book of Psalms is not simply meant to convey information. Rather, it transforms the reader as he actively enters into the prayers of the church, making their words his own, allowing them to change his heart. Most fundamentally, the performative reading of the Psalms should bring about a right ordering of desires. Another quote, the language of the Psalms recreates, rebuilds, and expands in a way that keeps all affections oriented toward God, end quote. This emphasis on the right ordering of affections is sustained by Augustine throughout his life, finding uh, a definitive expression in Book 14 of the City of God, where Augustine says, the citizens, excuse me, the citizens of God's holy city have all their affections rightly ordered. Among the various purposes of Augustine's confessions, arguably one of the most central is Augustine's attempt to portray the reordering of his desires so that readers may follow in his footsteps, leading to the proper ordering of their own affections and enkindling their love for God. By attempting, excuse me, by attending to the performative element of Augustine's reading of the Psalms then, we gain valuable insight into the nature of his project in Confessions. In addition to what has already been said about expositions, a word about Augustine's method of commenting on individual psalms will prove helpful as we approach Confessions. When reading expositions, one element of Augustine's treatment of the psalms that is bound to catch the eye of a modern reader is the comparatively great time and effort he expends commenting on a psalm's title and opening lines. Indeed, sometimes this is half to two-thirds of the commentary is simply on the title and the opening lines. Augustine doesn't leave us to wonder why he does so. He offers his reasons for paying special attention to titles and opening lines at various points throughout the expositions. One scholar draws together the most essential of these reasons in what follows, and I quote, the opening words of a psalm set the crucial context for its interpretation. Titles especially uncovered its living center or soul from which the whole was understood. A common image envisioned in the psalms as a house and the title as the lintel or door frame bearing the placard that tells who lives inside meaning also descended from the psalm's opening verse, which contained the essence that illumines the whole." End quote. Given the profusion of references to the psalms and confessions, as well as the performative element of reading the psalms discussed here, we do well to take our cue from Augustine and attend carefully to the title and opening lines of confessions. We'll begin with the latter. Great are you, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no measure. Man, a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man, bearing with him his mortality, bearing the witness of his own sin, and the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, a part of your creation, desires to praise you. You stir him to take delight in praising you, because you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. With these lines, Augustine sets his confessions in motion. 
Having been a teacher of rhetoric for years, he no doubt chose these words with consummate care. Moreover, we find within the pages of Confessions several of Augustine's reflections on the nature, power, and proper use of words. Such reflections bear explicit testimony to Augustine's concern with words throughout the work. He begins, however, not with an analysis of words, but with a careful employment of words in praise of God. So please bear with me. I'm going to look at these lines very carefully and, and try to see what Augustine shows us there. A great deal depends upon making a good beginning. Why then does Augustine use such words to open his confessions? How do these lines orient the reader for what is to follow? In the beginning, Augustine focuses our attention on praise. What part does praise play in the work as a whole? Beyond these questions, the title itself prompts others. What are confessions? And what does it mean to confess? More precisely, what might confession have to do with St. Augustine's purpose in writing his confessions? And what does confession have to do with the opening lines of and on praise? Let's begin by examining those opening lines in some detail. Exactly where and how does confessions begin? It opens in the presence of God, with Augustine raising a prayer of praise to him. In particular, he starts by employing words in praise of God's greatness, power, and wisdom. As things unfold, we see the initial orientation of Augustine's words is sustained throughout the entirety of the confessions. The entire work is an extended prayer to God. Furthermore, the opening lines are not just any words of praise. The work begins with a string of citations from sacred scripture, the written word of God. Specifically, it opens with the book of the Psalms. By using these citations, Augustine makes the words of Holy Writ his own words of praise. In a sense, he takes up the words of God and uses them to bring his confessions into being. The fact that Augustine, a former professor of rhetoric and now a Catholic bishop, begins with these words is tremendously significant. As a rhetor, one might expect him to begin with his own words, to engender confidence in him, ethos, if you will. Instead, he begins with the words of God, tacitly undercutting any credit he might receive as a former professor of rhetoric and weaver of words. Why begin with words of praise? This becomes clear as we read on. Augustine continues, man, a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Note that Augustine draws our attention to these words by repeating them verbatim within the next few lines. And by the way, by my count, I think he only repeats himself two or three times in all of the confessions, but he does that in the opening lines. Before the words are repeated, though, we find that there is something dreadfully wrong with man. Again, from Augustine, man bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his own sin, that God resists the proud. Placing these statements about man right after the praise of God naturally invites a comparison. Whereas God is highly to be praised of great power and infinite wisdom, man is but a part of his creation. The comparison dwarfs man in the majestic presence of God. Furthermore, 
man carries around with him his own mortality, a witness or testimony, evidence against himself of his own sin. Why does Augustine, why does his description have the structure that it does? In other words, why begin by noting that man is a creature who desires to praise God, then present this notion of mortality and its witness, and finally return to praising God? Though it's certainly not uh, enough evidence here to draw any conclusions at this point, I would like to make a suggestion, and then we could test it as the work unfolds. And sophomores, you can test it as you read confessions later this fall. Man begins as a creature who desires to praise God, yet due to his fall into sin, and pride in particular, he is subject to death. Nevertheless, his end is still the praise of God. In these opening lines, then, we see the makings of a circle. Man begins in God's good favor, falls away from him due to sin, and yet still hopes for return to him. With this suggestion in mind, we come to what are perhaps the most oft-quoted lines in all of Augustine's writings. You stir us to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Adding this to what comes before brings completion to the opening lines. It is God himself who instills within man a delight in praising him. Furthermore, we also learn the reason for it all, namely because God has made man for himself and his heart is restless until it rests in God. Without too much effort then, we can see how God is at once the source and origin as well as the end and final destination since it is he who first moves our hearts to take delight in praising him, hearts created by him and for him, and intended to find their ultimate rest in him. Augustine's reason for beginning with words of praise is now somewhat clearer. The act of praise is intimately bound up with the nature of man as created by God. In his expositions, Augustine makes the significance of praise for man clearer still. And again, a quote this time from the exposition on Psalm 148. The subject of our meditation in this present life should be the praises of God. For the everlasting exaltation of our life hereafter will be the praise of God, and none can become fit for the life hereafter who has not practiced himself for it now. End quote. Man is created for praise. In this mortal life, our subject of meditation, which of course is also the primary subject of meditation in the opening lines of confessions, is the praise of God. But what about that ever-present burden, the mortality man carries around with him wherever he goes in this life, a burden which serves as a constant testimony of his sin in God's resistance of the proud? How does acknowledging these truths about man's predicament in this mortal life relate to praise in particular and the broader context of confessions in general. To pursue answers to these questions, let's proceed beyond the opening lines and consider a few passages later in the first book. Right after the lines we've been discussing, Augustine prays, grant me, Lord, to know and to understand which comes first, to call upon you or to praise you, 
and whether knowing you precedes calling upon you. Three different references to the Psalms in that, that one brief quote. What follows is an extended group of questions interspersed with statements, all of which relate either implicitly or explicitly to the praise of God. The tenor of the exercise is that faith that of faith humbly seeking understanding in the presence of God. Significantly, Augustine does not come up with an answer to each question before moving on to further questions. You get this barrage of questions, right? After he says this, then he immediately goes into the questions and he goes from one to another and he, he's not going to give you an answer. Uh, although he will later, I think, in part. How's that for confidence? <laughs> In the midst of all these questions, though, there is no proud sense of cynicism or skepticism. The lack of definitive answers in no way undercuts or even diminishes Augustine's faith. Rather, the net result of Augustine's reflections is heightened praise of God. Speaking to and of God, he cries out, Most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful and just deeply hidden yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, always active, always in repose. And the list goes on. Near the end of this section, Augustine reflects upon his own speech. Another quote. But in these words, what have I said, my God, my life, my holy sweetness? What has anyone achieved in words when he speaks about you? Yet woe to those who are silent about you, because though loquacious with verbosity, they have nothing to say. Employing words in praise of God is a difficult business. As this entire section bears witness, we quickly come upon the limits of language in our attempts to praise him. Nevertheless, man is created for praise, and God moves man to take delight in praising him. How to proceed? The only way to turn is to God himself. Again, Augustine, who will enable me to find rest in you? Who will grant me that you come to my heart and intoxicate it? so that I forget my evils and embrace my one and only good, yourself. What are you to me? Have mercy so that I may find words. In your mercies, Lord God, tell me what you are to me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Speak to me so that I may hear. Augustine employs his own feeble speech to cry out to God asking God to grant him mercy so that he may speak. As he does many times throughout confessions, Augustine here finds the answer to his questions in Holy Scripture, the Word of God, and of course in the Psalms in particular. At this point in Book 1, Augustine is just about to launch into what has been called the, autobiog excuse me, the autobiographical part of the confessions, beginning midway through Book 1 and continuing through the end of Book 9. Before he does, however, Augustine draws attention to his own sin. The house of my soul is too small for you to come into it. May it be enlarged by you. It is in ruins. Restore it. In your eyes it has offensive features. 
I admit it. I know it. This is the most obvious type of confession in Confessions and establishes a clear connection to the title. And we will get there eventually to talk about the title. We see Augustine here uh, and throughout the work speaking against himself, using words to acknowledge his sins before God and anyone who reads the work. Among the various confessions of sin, we find Augustine paying careful attention to sins of speech. After treating his own beginnings and infancy, Augustine proceeds to his childhood, a period characterized by the power of speech. He acknowledges that he acquired this power by means of the mind God gave him. And yet, Augustine laments the fact that he was admonished to excel in the arts of the tongue in order to gain human honors and deceitful riches. He exposes the folly of those schoolmasters who, while caning him for neglecting his studies to play ball games, nevertheless engaged in their own more dubious games as adults. It is certainly wrong to be tormented by anger and jealousy when overcome by an opponent in a ball game. But how much more so, Augustine asks, to be still more tormented by these same vices when refuted by a fellow teacher while debating some pedantic question. Even when exposing the criticism and sins of his schoolmasters, however, Augustine fully acknowledges his own sin. Quote, I was at fault, Lord God, orderer and creator of all things in nature, but of sins only the orderer. We'll need to come back to that later, this question of order in the soul and how it gets there. Lord my God, I sinned by not doing as I was told by my parents and teachers, for later I was able to make good use of letters, whatever might be the intention of my adult guardians in wanting me to learn them." End quote. Furthermore, after confessing these and other sins, Augustine cries out to God, "'Look with mercy on these follies, Lord, and deliver us who now call upon you. Deliver also those who do not as yet pray that they may call upon you and you may set them free. So Augustine initially acquires the power of speech by using the mind God gave him. In his studies, he is then tempted to use his God-given power for ignoble sinful ends. At this point, he doesn't mention succumbing to this particular temptation, but he does succumb to others. After confessing his sins, he calls upon God to deliver him. We see here a structure similar to what we saw in the opening lines of confessions. Once again, God comes first, in this case, bestowing the gift of mind upon Augustine, making the possibility of speech uh, a reality for him, and so on, then turning towards sin and then a return to God. In the last line just quoted, we even see Augustine praying for those who have yet to call upon him, perhaps his readers, you and I, the grace of Augustine's prayer, itself a gift of God, begins the motion toward God. Augustine desires for others the freedom he has experienced, the freedom of a sinner to call upon God and thereby be delivered. Uh, next, I'd like to consider uh, two other passages in Book One where Augustine speaks of the use and abuse of words. While recalling his study of Greek and Latin literature, he points out the irony of learning about the wanderings of some legendary fellow named Aeneas, 
while oblivious to his own wanderings from God, right? There's a little rhetorical move, right? It's some fellow named Aeneas, as if no one's going to know who this gentleman is. He talks about some fellow named Cicero later on, too. There is also folly in his weeping over the death of Dido while dying in his alienation from God and shedding no tears for his own condition. He exposes those who buy and sell a literary education upon whose doors hang veils, not to signify their prestige, but to conceal their error. A little further on, still considering the use and abuse of words in a literary education, Augustine envisions a way of learning to speak and write without involving oneself in the sin of desiring the pleasures presented in pagan literature. Again, Augustine. For in those studies I learned many useful things, many useful words, but these words can also be learned through things that are not vain. That is the safe way along which children should walk. After appealing to the example of Jupiter raining a shower of gold into Danae's lap, Augustine explains in further detail. There is no force, no force at all, in the argument that these words are more easily learned through this obscene text. The words actually encourage the more confident committing of a disgraceful action. I bring no charge against the words, which are like exquisite and precious vessels, but the wine of error is poured into them for us by the drunken teachers. By the way, he doesn't simply dismiss the pagan literature. He imitates it at a deeper level. We can talk about that at another time, but that's not part of what I'm, what I'm arguing right now. The imagery in these lines is noteworthy. Words are choice and precious vessels. They may be filled with the wine of error or by implication of the truth. Uh, also of note is the prayer Augustine raises to God in the middle of the present discussion on the use and abuse of words. Quote, you, O Lord, are my king and my God. Turn to your service whatever may be of use in what I have learned in boyhood. May I dedicate to your service my power to speak and to write and to read and to count. Significantly, In these lines, Augustine explicitly consecrates his various capacities associated with the power of speech to the service of God. So one of the things that's going on in the Confessions, among many others, is a a consecration and then a reordering of speech and its proper use to lead others toward the praise of God. Finally, we get to the title. What we have here is the beginnings of Augustine's endeavor to redeem words and the power of speech, a confessional project that he sustains throughout the confessions. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. This is the original dignity of human speech, and this is its realizable end. That is, if man in this mortal life will acknowledge his sin and turn once more to God. There is a basic connection between praise and acknowledgement of sin. Indeed, uh, their connection is present in the meaning of Augustine's title, Confessions. For although it is not entirely clear in Book One, in addition what to uh, English readers is the obvious meaning of confession as acknowledgement of sin, there is also confession as proclamation of praise. 
These two meanings of confession are found again and again throughout the book of Psalms. And I would argue that that's exactly where Augustine gets it and he uses that to form the confessions. It is not surprising then that in his expositions, Augustine emphasizes the centrality of confession to human existence, both now and for eternity. And now follows an extended quote from Augustine uh, in, in that particular Psalm commentary on Psalm 102, or excuse me, 100. Always confess him, for you always have some reason to confess. It is hard in this life for a man to be so far changed that no cause for censure be discoverable in him. You must blame yourself, lest he who shall condemn blame you. Therefore, even when you have entered his courts, then also confess. When will there be no more confession of sins? in that rest, in that likeness of the angels. But consider what I have said. There, will, there there will be no confession of sins. I did not say there will be no confession, for there will be confession of praise. You will always confess that he is God, you are a creature." End quote. Thus, both confession of sin and confession of praise are vital to man's return to God. By employing words to confess his sins and praise God, Augustine in his confessions seeks to illustrate and embody a redemption of words and the power of speech. Taking his cue from and sustaining himself by the written word of God in general and the Psalms in particular, Augustine invites us, his readers, to follow him on this journey of confession. Thus far book one, I'm gonna skip now to book nine. It's fairly efficient. From the beginning of Confessions, we turn now to one of its ends. By the way, there are several beginnings and several ends. Book nine, the last of the autobiographical books. Books one through nine frame Augustine's account of his past life. Significantly in book nine, we see him revisit many of the themes raised in book one. And in fact, there's a a pairing that goes on, one and nine, two and eight, and so forth. Significantly in book nine, excuse me, there is also a noteworthy new element in the book, a sustained verse-by-verse exposition of a psalm. Throughout Confessions, Augustine cites or alludes to the psalms hundreds of times. By one scholar's reckoning, Augustine directly quotes the psalms at least 222 times. In comparison with 287 references to all other books or combinations of books in the Old Testament combined. If we count allusions as well, another scholar claims that there are more than 400 references to the Psalms, making the average of references exceed one per page. Notably, Augustine's use of the Psalms and confessions is typically quite different from the verse-by-verse homiletic commentaries of expositions. Instead of proceeding methodically through a given Psalm, Augustine usually intersperses citations or allusions to verses in whole or in part within the continuous progression of his thoughts. Without the guidance of a well-documented translation, many of these references would likely go unnoticed by most readers. Furthermore, even when Augustine is not referring explicitly to a psalm, his diction is habitually elevated to their level, giving the impression that the fragments of psalms he weaves into confessions are just an extemporaneous part of his own heavenward dialogue 
with God. Notice he's placing himself within the sacred text and rendering his life intelligible by doing so. Unlike his customary practice of tacitly interweaving the Psalms into his discourse, in book 10, excuse me, book 9, uh, the reading of the Psalms in general, and Psalm 4 in particular, becomes explicit and thematic, thereby capturing the reader's attention. The context of Augustine's use of Psalm 4 is also significant. In terms of immediate context, his encounter with the Psalms occurs when Augustine, his mother Monica, and a few close friends have retired to the county estate, country estate of Veracundus in Cassiciacum, where, quote, they rested in God from the heat of the world. Coming very near the end of Augustine's account of his past life, Cassiciacum represents a place of relative earthly rest, foreshadowing the eternal perfect rest of heaven sought in those opening lines of Book One. Furthermore, this rest at Cassiciacum coincides with Augustine's liberation from the profession of rhetoric, a profession that symbolizes the culmination of the misguided, proud use of words and the power of speech Augustine invade against in Book One. It is no mere coincidence that the relinquishment of his profession, excuse me, that the relinquishment of his profession of rhetoric occurs together with his taking up of the Psalms in earnest. As if to underscore the opposition, Augustine refers to his teaching post in rhetoric as a, quote, chair of lies, end quote, what many scholars take to be an unmistakable allusion to Psalm 1. Whereas Augustine had learned to speak for the sake of worldly ambition and human glory, embodying the pride mentioned as constitutive of man's fall in the opening lines, he now turns away from that proud mode of speech and learns to speak again, following the lead of God's word as manifest in the Psalms. The redemption of words and the power of speech that Augustine set in motion as he began confession now finds a succinct expression in his reading of Psalm 4. It is also crucial to bear in mind uh, the place of this passage within the broader context of confessions. As James J. O'Donnell argues, the contents and structure of Psalm 4, occurring here at almost the exact middle point of confessions, counting pages, lines, or words, we don't need to make too much of that, uh, <clears throat> duplicate closely the structure of the work as a whole. That's the important part. We find near the middle uh, what seems to be a microcosm of the whole. Augustine's reading of Psalm 4 occurs in the middle of the confession, shedding light on his entire confessional project, and it amounts, as many have said, to a microcosm, representing in a few lines the structure and content of the whole work. What Augustine does in these lines is what he is doing on a much grander, all-encompassing scale in the 13 books of confessions. Turning to the passage itself, we find that reading the Psalms at Cassiciacum gives Augustine a new voice, taking us back to those comments from the expositions on the Psalms. Both immediately before and immediately after this reading, Augustine loses the power to speak. First, he loses the power to speak because his lungs won't allow him to continue on, uh, and so he has to step down. Uh, after he reads the Psalm, he has a toothache and is unable to speak. 
So he has someone write out. So he flanks this reading of, of Psalm 4 by two instances of speechlessness. The speechlessness that flanks his reading of the Psalms reinforces our sense that Augustine's acquisition of a new voice is not his own doing. Rather, it is a gift of God. As he reads the Psalms, he exercises his new voice and experiences the transformative effects of meditative confessional reading. Again, Augustine. My God, how I cried to you when I read the Psalms of David, songs of faith, utterances of devotion, which allow no pride of spirit to enter. Notice, the, what's in the crosshairs is pride here. Um, how I cried to you in those Psalms and how they kindled my love for you. I was fired by an enthusiasm to recite them, were it possible to the entire world in protest against the pride of the human race, which by the way is sort of what confessions is, right? This passage is striking for at least three reasons. First, we notice that his reading of the psalm serves as an antidote to pride, the besetting sin of fallen man identified in the opening lines. Connected to the extirpation of pride throughout confession is the humility of Christ, the word made flesh, as well as the humble language of the written word of God, right? He reads Cicero's Hortensius, becomes convinced that he must pursue truth wherever it may be found, turns immediately to Holy Scripture, and is offended. It speaks in too lowly of a way, and then he turns to the Manichees from there, <clears throat> and it will take him nine years to overcome uh, that turn. We see in this passage the beginning of Augustine's lifelong endeavor to make the words of the Psalms his own, uniting himself with the totus Christus and identifying himself with the humility both of the written word and the word made flesh in order to flee from pride. Second, Augustine's reading enkindles in him the fire of love for God. He explicitly unites his reading of the Psalms with their recitation throughout the whole world. They are being sung in all the world, he says, and there is none who can hide himself from your heat. Psalm 18.7. In a way, Augustine's reading of Psalm 4 serves as an exemplary instance of the universal reading or chanting of the Psalms, witnessing their transformative power in the daily life of Christ's church. These are central unifying themes, not only for this passage, but for confessions as a whole. And of course, there are key themes and expositions as well. Finally, Augustine expresses his wish to recite the Psalms to the whole world, a wish that is realized figuratively in every reader's encounter with confessions throughout the ages. Just as Augustine takes up the Psalms and embodies their meditative reading and confessions, finding his own place within the body of Christ, so too every reader is invited to imitate Augustine's example. Earlier I mentioned that Augustine's performative reading of the Psalms was meant to bring about a right ordering of desires. This truth is manifest in Augustine's encounter with Psalm 4 in Book 9. Here Augustine gives a picture of the early stages of the conversion of his mind and will and relates how he owed the transformation of his inner attitudes, affections, and feelings to the Psalms. From his personal history, 
he was aware that his experience had been clarified for him and his effective life healed by the Psalms and that in the biblical words, he had discovered a medium of expression adequate to his own soul. Turning to Augustine's actual reading of Psalm 4, we begin with his wish that the Manichees, who had long dissuaded him from embracing the Catholic faith, could have seen the effect reading the psalm had on him. Uh, again, from his comment on reading the psalm, I wish that they, namely the Manichees, might be somewhere close at hand, without my knowledge that they were there, and could see my face and hear my words, and that they could see what the psalm did in me. It's kind of similar to what he says about reading Cicero. Cicero, reading Cicero won him. That's one of the first places in the Confessions where he says that reading something set him on fire. So we have a, a kind of fruition of that notion of being inflamed, if you will, by the reading of something here. On one hand, Augustine desires his readers, excuse me, his reading to be public in a sense. That is, he wants to proclaim the effects of his reading to the world, but especially the Manichees. On the other hand, he does not want to know of their presence because of the way this knowledge would affect Augustine's own reading. Here, Augustine is wrestling with the very issue he raised in Book One, namely the way in which words and the power of speech can be abused. In the presence of an audience, the temptation to pride and self-display rears its head again. So Augustine desires to share the fruits of his reading, but he wants to do so without admiring himself in the very sins he has turned to the Psalms to avoid. Of course, the difficulty that Augustine faces here is the same difficulty he faces on a larger scale in writing his confessions. Why would you write a book about yourself? I'm not saying that's all the Confessions is about. But Augustine is very aware of that problem. How do I do this without engaging in self-display? So we find him returning to that, that concern again and again throughout Confessions. After reading the opening verse, which invokes God and cries out to him for help, Augustine says, quote, I was in fear and horror and again, I was on fire with hope and exultation in your mercy, O Father. And all these emotions found expression in my eyes and in my voice when your Holy Spirit turned to us and said, O ye sons of men, how long will you be dull of heart? Why do you love vanity so much and seek after lying? For I myself had loved vanity and sought after lying. These recollective lines illustrate Augustine's customary mode of engaging Psalm 4. The psalm prompts Augustine's effective response, providing an occasion for the expression of his emotions. The Holy Spirit speaks to Augustine through the words of the psalm, leading him step by step through a retrospective reordering of his affections. Again, Augustine, I heard these things and trembled to hear them, for they were spoken to such as I remembered myself to have been. Central to Augustine's recollective reading of Psalm 4 is his acknowledgement of his past sins. Quote, I read, be angry and sin not, this is verse 4-4, four, four. and by this I was much moved, O my God, for I had by then learned to be angry with myself for the past that I might not sin in what remained of life. 
end quote. This anger with his past sins is a recapitulation of a large part of confessions as a whole, wherein Augustine recounts his former failures and places himself in the mercy of God. Just as significant, though, is Augustine's reading of the concluding verse. O in peace, O in the self-same, O how he has said, I will sleep and I will rest. You supremely are the self-same, for you are not changed, and in you is that rest in which all cares are forgotten. The psalm thus ends in peace and rest, secured by God. We see that Augustine's reading of Psalm 4 has the same essential structure as the opening lines of Book 1 and as the first nine books of Confessions. The psalm begins in God's presence with man crying out to God in his need. As man acknowledges his sin and turns back to God, he looks forward in hope to an eternal rest with him. The story of Psalm 4 is the story of confessions. Book 10 and beyond. Although little is said explicitly about the Psalms in books 10 through 13, the presence of the Psalms as a so-called veritable support structure, reminding us of our, my opening comments, continues in the, to the very end of Confessions. Furthermore, there is one explicit reference in particular that confirms the view of the Psalms outlined in this lecture. Within the context of his discussion of time and eternity, Augustine compares the recitation of a Psalm with the narrative structure of a human life. Again, Augustine. What occurs in a psalm as a whole occurs in its particular pieces and in its individual syllables. The same is true of a longer action in which perhaps the psalm is a part. It is also valid of the entire life of an individual person where all actions are parts of a whole and of the total history of the sons of men where all human lives are but parts. Much could be said about this passage, clearly. Perhaps most importantly for our purposes, Augustine here explicitly compares the unity of a psalm to the unity of a human life. In retelling his past life in books one through nine of Confessions, Augustine brings together these two unities by incorporating a profusion of references and allusions to the psalms in his autobiography. Beyond this, though, the passage gives us a clue regarding how to think about the Psalms and Augustine's own life within the context of confessions as a whole. Much as one Psalm may be incorporated into a larger collection, so one human life, in this case Augustine's, may be incorporated into a larger whole, namely of salvation history. As Augustine continues to pursue God in the last four books of confessions, the context broadens from focusing on his life primarily to encompassing the grand design of God in drawing all of redeemed mankind to its eternal rest in him. In conclusion, the book of Psalms is present throughout Augustine's Confessions, serving as an ordering principle that animates the whole and gives the work literary and theological unity. Whether in direct citation or seamless allusion, 
or through elevating and sanctifying the diction of Augustine's own words, the Psalms are an ever-present companion in his journey toward rest in God. Augustine's Confessions has rightly been called an amplified Psalter. Within its pages, Augustine shares how reading proves instrumental not only to his own conversion, but also to the return of all redeemed men to God. Near the end of Book 13, as Augustine interprets Genesis 1 in light of the movement toward final rest in God, he has occasion to speak of the holy angels. Here Augustine simply states, they read, they choose, they love. Given our analysis of the Psalms and Confessions, his words could equally, if not perhaps better, be applied to men. As men learn to read the book of Psalms in light of Totus Christus, they come to identify their own voice with that of the body of Christ. And as they read, they come to choose God and turn away from their sins, confessing them and seeking his mercy. Finally, they love, and in loving they approach their hoped-for rest in God. This brief tripartite movement toward God is an illuminating synopsis of the journey of Augustine, and by extension of his readers in confessions. Thank you for your attention.